Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. In July 1894, Shibli published Safranameye Rum Omisar Turkey, Egypt, and Syria, a travelogue. Writing mostly in the early months of 1894, Shibli paints a vivid, critical, and sometimes humorous picture of the social, political, and intellectual life of the Ottoman Empire and Egypt in the 19th century. Shibli's account is remarkable in that it draws not only on his personal recollections and experiences, but also on the kind of archive that appealed to him as a historian inspired by the Enlightenment and by the classical Arabic tradition. Government and institutional records, which he collected on his travels, and classical and contemporary Turkish and Arabic literature. The narrative records first-hand accounts and secondary source information about educational institutions, including colleges, printing houses, manuscript archives, libraries, literary societies, and debate clubs, complete with charts detailing student enrollment, school curricula, and library catalogs to which Shibley often adds historical context through broad discussions of regional history and contemporary politics. Against the backdrop of educational institutions, Shibley records sketches and anecdotes that offer rare glimpses of intellectual networks, religious festivals, visual and literary culture, and everyday life in the Ottoman Empire and Egypt. The community of Damascene Sufis in Istanbul with ties to Ottoman statesmen and Sufis in India literary intellectual salons in Beirut, Jerusalem, and Izmir, manuscript archives in Istanbul and Cairo, the Jesuit College in Beirut, descriptions of restaurants, hotels, mosques, colleges, and lodges in Istanbul, the office of the Mufti of Jerusalem, Hindu merchants in Aden, the community of Indian Indian merchants in Istanbul, museums, theaters, and stage dramas in Cairo, the Muharram mourning rituals in Istanbul, and a brothel in Beirut. Most of the accounts favor description over analysis or reflection, but several anecdotes are specifically crafted for the purposes of edification and reform. 
These anecdotes reflect something of the cosmopolitanism of the Ottoman Empire and Egypt in the late 19th century. They also reflect, and sometimes directly address, the effects of colonialism on local economies and politics, and shed important light on the formative role that new forms of print media, literature, and education played in shaping the intellectual culture of the day, giving us microcosmic glimpses of broader processes of historical change, end quote. This was the translator's afterword in a translation of an Urdu language travelogue by the 19th century Muslim scholar Shibli Notmani. Our translator in our guest for today's show is Dr. Gregory Maxwell Bruce, and he is the first to translate Shibli's Safarnameye Rum o Misr o Sham, entitled Turkey, Egypt, and Syria, a travelogue in English, and published by Syracuse University Press in 2020. Gregory Maxwell Bruce holds a PhD in Asian cultures and languages from the University of Texas at Austin. He is currently a lecturer in Urdu at the University of California, Berkeley, where he teaches courses on Urdu and Persian language and literature. He is also a co-founder and co-editor of the Journal of Urdu Studies, published by Bro. His writings about Islam, South Asian intellectual history, and Hindi, Urdu, and Persian literature can be found in the South Asia Multidisciplinary Academic Journal, or Samaj. Sagar, as well as the Encyclopedia of Islam and, and Encyclopedia Iranica. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Asad, co-host of the New Books in Middle East Studies podcast, and your host for our conversation today. Today, we're speaking to Dr. Bruce about his translation of Shibli Nomani's travelogue and the significance of this particular travelogue to a wide array of thematic and disciplinary subjects. Without further ado, Allow me to welcome Dr. Gregory Maxwell Bruce to our program. Welcome, Dr. Bruce. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for joining our, our show today. Um, and as always, we like to begin with an introduction to the life of our guests. So before we take our journey across South Asia and the Middle East with Shibli, we'd love to hear a little bit about your own journey and what brought you to writing this magisterial translation of yours. Thank you very much for that very kind and generous introduction. Well, I was introduced to Shibli when I was in graduate school at the University of Texas at Austin. And um, I was fortunate to be trained by uh, philologists and intellectual historians, uh, and of course in Urdu and Persian literature. And um, I found myself in graduate seminars uh, encountering and eventually writing uh, about Shimli Nomani. And uh, this eventually led me to uh, decide to write my dissertation about him. And um, in the course of writing my dissertation, uh, I came across uh, this text. Of course, uh, uh, I had read at that point uh, most of his major works. Um, But I encountered this travelogue and... uh, began sort of reading it and thinking about uh, its significance in his intellectual life. Um, And uh, it was at that point that I started asking the questions that, uh, you know, uh, my mentors uh, would ask uh, and all intellectual historians ask, I think, uh, which is, uh, uh, which are uh, things like, you know, who are these people uh, that he is meeting? Uh, What is this college that he's visiting? 
um, you know, what are these books that he is picking up at libraries? Uh, and that led me to spend time uh, in uh, libraries, uh, looking through biographical dictionaries, uh, institutional records, uh, to try to get a sense of this world that he had encountered. And the more I dug uh, into the archives, the more convinced I became uh, of the importance of this work, uh, of this travel log, uh, and uh, the sort of uniqueness of the world that he had uncovered. Uh, it's a world that uh, has uh, been studied to some extent, uh, but certainly not um, one that uh, has been studied in the way that he sort of encountered it. And so I thought, you know, uh, having taken uh, many, many uh, hours of uh, time to uh, find out who these people were that he uh, was encountering. Some of them, by the way, took uh, it sort of took me more than uh, more than a year uh, or two of uh, occasional digging through archives to find information about them. Um, I eventually uh, decided that this would make a, a really good translation project. And so uh, that turned into uh, an ongoing uh, process of coming to terms with uh, meaning making in the text and uh, all of the allusions and all of that. And uh, eventually uh, I um, uh, finished it and uh, here it is. I want to move now toward a brief biography of our protagonist and a survey of the terrain in which he lived, um, to which he spoke to um, a little bit. Uh, so for our listeners, would you be able to offer a quick sort of biographical sketch of Shibli? Uh, maybe a summary of his political and intellectual milieu and how he in particular was situated within it? Sure. So uh, Shibley was born in 1857, uh, which South Asianists know is a watershed year in the history of the subcontinent. This is the year that marks the transition from uh, colonialism to imperialism. Um, he's born in... A, that is British colonialism to British imperialism. Uh, he's born in uh, a small village just outside a small town, uh, the town being Azamgard in what is now uh, UP, uh, in Uttar Pradesh in modern India, the United Provinces in late British India, at the time, the uh, Northwest Provinces. Um, and uh, he receives... Uh, an education in Arabic rationalism uh, and also in Persian. His father knew Persian and was uh, kind of an entrepreneur and businessman locally. Um, and Shibli spent most of his youth um, studying with um, experts in uh, the Arabic rational sciences. So he studied grammar and logic. Um, he studied jurisprudential texts. He studied poetry uh, and um, uh, sort of other forms of uh, literature. And um, he uh, eventually 
finishes his course and attempts to establish himself uh, as a teacher, uh, but also does what so many do who have recently finished their education, uh, and he decided to become a lawyer. <laughs> and so he, uh, he eventually uh, passes the exam uh, to become a legal representative, uh, but soon thereafter gets a job doing what he clearly preferred to do, uh, which uh, was to study and teach Arabic and Persian. And so he is hired uh, in 1881, 1882, uh, as a professor of Arabic and Persian at the Mohammedan Anglo-Oriental College in Aligarh. Now, what's significant about this uh, for his life uh, and for the travelogue um, is that it was at this moment uh, that he came into close personal contact with Sayyid Ahmad Khan, who is arguably the most influential social reformer, uh, uh, Muslim social reformer uh, especially, uh, of 19th century India. Um, and he also came into contact with Sayyid Ahmad Khan's library. And that meant uh, having access to books that were published uh, in the Middle East and sent to India, purchased and you know, distributed in India and, and purchased by Sayyid Ahmad Khan. And it also meant access to um, Urdu translations of writers like Edward Gibbon uh, and other Enlightenment era thinkers, because of course Shibli didn't know English or any European languages. And so he uh, starts his career uh, teaching Arabic and Persian, uh, reading these uh, texts. And um, what his job asked him to do was to train students in the curriculum of Arabic and Persian uh, that was prescribed by the colonial uh, university examining boards. Uh, and so he would uh, sort of teach Arabic and Persian language and literature in the day. And uh, at night, I mean, so to speak, uh, he, would, uh, he began writing uh, histories. And so um, by the time he had written the travelogue, uh, by, by the time he wrote the travelogue, he had written a biography of uh, Mamun, the Abbasid Caliph. He had just finished uh, his second major work, which was a biography of Abu Hanifa. Uh, the eponym of the Hanafi school of Islamic jurisprudence. And um, he would go on uh, in his life after writing the travelogue uh, to write uh, biographies of Umar ibn Khattab, uh, al-Farooq. Uh, he would uh, write a biography of Ghazali, of Rumi. Uh, he wrote works in theology. Uh, he wrote a magisterial four-volume study of Persian poetry, uh, and eventually uh, his last major work uh, before he passed away in 1914 uh, was a biography of the prophet. And, you know, many of these works uh, remain uh, standard texts in, uh, on their topic uh, in Urdu today. Uh, you can still buy Shibli's uh, travel log uh, at any Urdu bookshop. Uh, you can still buy uh, his biography of Ghazali. Uh, you can still purchase Sher al-Ajam, his 
history and critical study of Persian poetry. Uh, and so he was um, among the most influential writers uh, of his time and remains among the most influential Urdu writers of ours. Now, we know that Shibli was um, prolific, as you, as you, you know, so eloquently articulated. Um, he produced all of the scholarly work. Um, you know, he had a command of Arabic, Persian, and Urdu. Um, he knew the Islamic tradition well. Um, and it was also a time of great intellectual exchange and reform um, for Shibli himself, uh, particularly in the Islamicate world. Um, and so I'm curious now as to how Shibli's erudition um, and his, his meticulous scholarship connected to um, the work that he did in terms of um, the travelogue. What were some of the major concerns that animated Shibli that, that led him to undertake this journey to write the travelogue, um, you know, to, to explore the Ottoman Middle East and, and to write about thing, everything from, you know, the, the presence of apricots to the particularities of customs and behaviors to the educational institutions that he encountered? Um, how was all of that sort of connected to the, his scholarly output and what animated him to, to, to even begin to, to undertake that endeavor? Thank you uh, for that question. Um, you know, Shibli wrote as someone who stood um, really at the intersection of a number of projects, institutional projects, as well as scholarly, reformative projects, social projects. And the travelogue uh, reflects uh, many of them. So on the one hand, um, you will note uh, that, you know, much of the travelogue is like charts with detailed data about, you know, the number of students in a college in Beirut and what their, uh, what community they belong to, uh, or the uh, number of books that have been published by a particular press. Um, I mean, just sort of like, this painstaking detail. Um, and my sense is that um, that project of the travelogue is largely motivated by the task that he was charged with uh, by Sayyid Ahmad Khan, by his, his sort of mentor and boss, um, which was to bring books back uh, to uh, the college uh, and uh, also to collect information about uh, educational institutions, um, printing presses, etc. Uh, in one of the letters, I believe, uh, in the appendix to the travelogue, uh, he talks about sort of Persian language newspapers in, in Istanbul, in the Ottoman Empire, that could be used to promote uh, their college and its sort of social reform agenda. Um, and so on the one hand, uh, he's, he's sort of traveling as uh, a fact finder for this, you know, educational institution. Uh, but he's also traveling as a research scholar. Uh, and, you know, I mentioned earlier his biography of Mamun and his biography of Abu Hanifa, uh, which are grounded in uh, close study of um, the kinds of classical Arabic texts uh, that were becoming increasingly available to him uh, through uh, print and uh, the collection of uh, 
uh, and uh, of, of critical editions of this literature. Um, and he, when he uh, traveled, uh, he had in mind uh, to write this book on uh, Omar Farouk, uh, we're told, on the second uh, caliph of Islam uh, from his perspective. And, uh, and so he uh, was very concerned to find uh, books that he couldn't find in India, books that he didn't have access to uh, in Aligarh. Uh, and uh, to copy manuscripts if he could. Uh, there are references in letters to his father, I believe, uh, that he attempted to memorize some of these texts, uh, at least parts of them. Um, and so he's someone who is uh, a research scholar. And that is another layer of the travelogue that's really fascinating to trace. I mean, his descriptions of these tiny manuscript archives in Istanbul uh, that don't exist anymore uh, are some of the uh, most fascinating uh, sort of passages in the book. He also, by the way, was, uh, we learn from his letters uh, to Sayyid Muhammad Khan, he was also gathering, uh, attempting to gather uh, texts uh, by uh, Al-Ghazali. Uh, Sayyid Muhammad Khan was writing about Al-Ghazali at the time uh, and would eventually go on to publish a series of essays about him. And Shibli uh, eventually uh, sort of took that project uh, and made it his own after Sayyid Ahmad Khan died uh, and wrote his biography of Ghazali as well. And so he's he's someone who is a research scholar. He's really interested in what's available in the libraries, what are the manuscripts that I can find, and how do these relate to my broader project of uh, sort of um, the history of Islam, uh, the history of uh, Muslim statesmen, uh, Muslim philosophers, uh, Muslim uh, sort of jurisprudence, um, and that's another layer, um, you know. But he's also someone who is uh, part of this milieu that sees um, sees social transformation uh, as a means of. Uh, well, a, a whole range of objectives, uh, obtaining a bunch of uh, objectives. So, uh, sort of socioeconomic improvement, um, uh, sort of in better living conditions. Um, and so he also is someone who is concerned uh, with uh, social reform. And he writes uh, some of the travelogue uh, in uh, a kind of a, a reformer's mode. Uh, he's very concerned about uh, certain kinds of behavior uh, and certain forms of propriety and impropriety and, and what counts as good behavior and what doesn't. Uh, and that's another uh, important uh, part of the travelogue. Um, he's also traveling as someone who likes to have a good time. Uh, Shibli talks about uh, sort of the foods that he eats um, and uh, you know the, all of the fun that he has, uh, where in, especially in Istanbul. Um, and so that's another uh, motivation uh, to travel. Um, and, um, and then, of course, there's the question of, of why he writes the travel log, which is a, a, a related but nonetheless separate question. Um, so he travels in 1892, uh, but as you mentioned at the beginning, he doesn't write the travel log until 1894. So uh, he's been back for uh, well over a year by the time he um, begins to compile everything. 
he had intended to write the travelogue uh, early on, or at least he had the idea to do it. I don't know if he intended to do it, but he had the idea to write it. Um, and then he, but he didn't, of course. And he, when he eventually began writing, uh, he was at that time in 1894, not only someone who was an Arabic and Persian professor training students, but he had uh, become a prominent intellectual figure. He had um, become someone who was becoming involved with educational, other educational institutions, uh, the uh, University of Allahabad, for example, uh, and also a Congress of Scholars that was thinking about ways to um, sort of come together and um, both reform and also unify uh, Arabic uh, education in India, this organization called the Nadwatul Ulama. Um, and he uh, was writing at a moment when uh, the place of Arabic learning in South Asia was a question mark in people's minds. Um, the shape and future of that project was something that was being talked about. Um, and uh, he uh, brings his experiences in uh, Egypt in, in particular to bear on the way that he uh, sort of begins to um, imagine the future of Arabic learning uh, in his own time and, and for what he imagined to be future generations of uh, students. And so all of those are part of the project of the of the travelogue. And it, it's, I think in many ways, it's one of the things that makes it such an interesting and exciting book to read. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. As one reads it, I feel like, uh, or at least when I read it, um, you know, I got the sense that Shibley saw it almost as his duty uh, to correct a lot of the misunderstandings that he felt were pervasive, be it about Arabs or Turks, uh, Muslims, um, you know, uh, Middle Easterners, quote unquote, right? He, he speaks in, in very sort of, 
broad uh, civilizational terms, and I, I suppose that is to be expected given given the milieu and context of his time. But I also get the sense that you know he was almost advancing or attempting to advance a kind of Muslim or Islamic cosmopolitanism. Um, and I wanted I was I was curious to know if this would be an accurate framing of if this is something that we can excavate from the text. Um, this this idea of this pan-Islamic community, cosmopolitan pan-Islamic community, and and whether that's something that Shibli um, himself uh, was articulating. Well, thank you for that question. It's a it's a difficult one to answer. So, I mean, on the one hand, um, you know, there are these passages in the travelogue in which Shibli expresses very clearly um, a kind of a sense of belonging. It's motivated by religious community, right? Uh, I mean, you know, uh, there's a there's a kind of an episode when he's on he's on the ship, uh, and uh, he attempts to sort of show this group of um, Arabic speaking uh, men from uh, Syria uh, that he's a scholar, uh, and they sort of um, ignore him. Uh, and it's because of the way that he's dressed that they're ignoring him. Uh, it's his hat, if memory serves. Uh, and um, but when when there's a recognition that um, he's a Muslim uh, and that his dress has deceived them into believing that he's not, um, then there's a kind of brotherhood uh, and a deep sort of friendship that forms. And it's 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 largely through networks of uh, Muslim thinkers, right? That he is sort of living and, and experiencing um, uh, Istanbul and later Beirut and Jerusalem uh, and Cairo. Um, and so there is a kind of, you know, sense of community and belonging, I think, that the travel log attempts to, you know, uh, not only to kind of represent, but also does a very good job of kind of, um, of showing uh, the ways in which this sense of belonging uh, is something that, um, you know, reaches across region and it reach, it stretches across, um, you know, empire uh, and it stretches across um, uh, language to, to an extent, right? But I say to an extent because on the other hand, um, you know, Shibli is also someone who uh, is writing acutely aware of his own sort of what we might call positionality, right, uh, as an Indian. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's largely language that becomes the vehicle for the connections that he makes. And he talks in his letters, and to an extent he talks in the travelogue itself about not really being able to get to know very many uh, Turks uh, because he doesn't speak the language um, and instead spends most of his time among these uh, uh, sort of mostly Syrian uh, immigrants uh, to Istanbul, people who are there. Some are just visiting. Some seem to have created a life for themselves there students and people connected with the Ottoman state. And so, um, and so the, there's, there's that limitation on 
cosmopolitanism as a framework. And then, of course, there's another big problem with thinking about this as Muslim cosmopolitanism, at least in uh, sort of in, in totalizing terms, which is that while there is this sort of sense of, you know, uh, the flow of ideas uh, across region, uh, the movement of people, uh, a sense of belonging, you know, Shibley is also someone who writes this travelogue uh, deeply concerned with uh, India, with South Asia, with India, with, Brit- with Muslims in British India and, and the princely states. Uh, that is his audience. And he, um, of course, I think one of the things then that the travelogue opens up is that in fact, this sort of idea of cosmopolitanism is really something uh, that maybe if it is cosmopolitanism, we need a way to think about cosmopolitanism that relates these trans-imperial networks, um, this kind of um, sense of belonging beyond one's sort of cultural milieu through language, through religious community, linguistic community, religious community, that all of that is mediated at the same time by a, a very kind of localized, grounded reality. Uh, and um, I think that's one of the interesting aspects of the, of the travelogue, that there's a, a kind of, there's a negotiation between uh, what you've called Islamic cosmopolitanism and a very sort of Indo-Muslim cultural, intellectual, historical milieu uh, in which Shibli writes and with which he is primarily concerned in the book. I think in addition to that, I found one of, one of the most fascinating qualities for me of the travelogue was the, its richness, both from a thematic as well as from a disciplinary standpoint. I mean, it cuts across literature, both poetry and prose. Um, it can be read as an anthropology or an anthropological work, a uh, historical work. It, it touches upon sociology, among many other disciplines. And it also touches on themes you know, related to representation, technology, religion, colonialism, etc., cetera, um, in such a way that offers what I feel was a very penetrating critique of how these concepts were understood through you know, if I may use the Foucauldian language, um, a, a Western European matrix of knowledge and power. Um, and I know people have written and spoken about how, you know, Shibli was almost, uh, you know, identifying these qualities long before uh, many of our post-colonial thinkers uh, came to identify them in, the, in, in, in their works. I, I personally felt as though, you know, it almost anticipated Edward Said's Orientalism. And I was wondering what your thoughts are on that or if it can be read in such a way or if it's, you know, how would you approach that question? Wow, thank you. So um, I think that there are definite similarities um, between especially the introduction of the travelogue and the critique of the relationship between discourse um, and especially literary discourse or discourse in literature um, and power uh, that resemble Said uh, quite strikingly. Uh, I mean, so Shibli has this uh, uh, sort of argument that he makes uh, about uh, the representation of uh, Turks and Arabs 
And basically what he says is that uh, to read European literature and not to have a kind of negative attitude about or negative stereotypes about Turks, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, uh, would be like taking a soporific drug. Yeah, he used the word khab ava, yeah, a, a dream bringing, right, sleep inducing yeah. drug, um, and uh, not falling asleep. That is, that, that literary representation has this kind of uh, you know, uh, power to overtake the consciousness of a person. I mean, quite literally, that's sort of the metaphor, quite literally a metaphorical, <laughs> uh, that's sort of the, the argument, uh, the metaphorical argument that he's making, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, there's a lot of similarity, I think. Uh, at the same time, you know, Shibley's also someone who's writing in a, in a kind of post-Enlightenment world. He's someone who is concerned with uh, the histories of civilizations and the comparison of civilizations to an extent. Um, he's someone who's deeply influenced by the, the kind of projects of, of writers like Edward Gibbon, but also uh, Ibn Khaldun. Um, and so, you know, he doesn't come at the question of the relationship between discourse and power, knowledge and power, uh, literary representation, um, and sort of the other uh, in the way that Saeed does. Uh, I mean, I think that that's that in, in a sense is obvious because, of course, Saeed is responding to uh, a very different set uh, of, um, you know, theorists and writers in Orientalism. But it is striking uh, that there is this awareness of this power. And I think that it's especially important because Shibli, of course, writes as all of the things that we've talked about already. He writes as a historian. He writes as a a sort of someone trained in the Arabic rationalist tradition. He writes as a language teacher, uh, a teacher of literature, as a researcher, as an institution builder. But he also writes as a colonized subject. Um, And so for him, with all of those interesting and important and influential, really is the word I should have used, um, sort of things motivating him, backgrounds motivating his ideas, uh, he's also a colonized subject that has firsthand experience of the power of representation to change uh, perception. And I think, you know, I think of something like the colonial curriculum uh, that he was teaching as an Arabic and Persian professor uh, and the English curriculum uh, that his students uh, would have also uh, been studying and reading uh, and the kind of 19th century uh, literature, uh, the romanticism, the uh, forms of literature that they would have been reading, the kinds of things that Edward Said talks about uh, in his book. Um, and of course, uh, you know, the, the sort of uh, arguments being advanced by people like Renan uh, and other people about Islam, all of these things are coming down to bear on the mind, not only of Shibli and, and his sort of his circle of writers and teachers and, and, and thinkers, but on the minds of his students as well. Uh, and you'll notice in the travel log uh, that he talks a lot about students. He talks about uh, sort of socializing with students. He talks about teaching back in India. 
uh, he sort of teaches the uh, Isaguji, uh, which is a, a kind of a very short work, uh, foundational work in uh, Arabic logic uh, when he's in Istanbul. And this is something he would have taught back in India and been taught uh, in his youth. Um, and so I think he's also writing as someone, again, as a colonized subject, as a researcher, but also as someone who's observing the power uh, of this kind of Orientalist discourse uh, to shape uh, perceptions, especially among, among students. So that's one of the impressions that I get uh, from doing some close reading of this text and then also relating it to his intellectual life. So as a treat for our listeners, I was curious to know what your favorite passage is from the travelogue, or at least one that sticks out to you, um, and how that particular passage speaks to Shibley's frame of mind and global context, which you just meticulously just described. Uh, well, thank you for this question. Uh, you know, uh, I've, we've been talking about, you know, intellectual history and power and knowledge and things. I think it's also important that Shibley wrote this text uh, to entertain readers uh, and to be something that they would would want to spend time sort of engaging with. And so, um, you know, in in between uh, the very detailed charts uh, that we've described and talked about uh, earlier, uh, he's also sharing some very uh, colorful anecdotes. So. I don't know that I have a favorite anecdote in the travel log. There's a lot of them. Um, uh, you know, there's this story about uh, encountering the Ottoman Sultan, Abdul Hamid II, right? Uh, he goes to the Salamlik, uh, which is this kind of large procession on Friday for the Sultan to go and read uh, namaz. Uh, and uh, he describes being set in a line with, you know, various sort of, one imagines dignitaries and high-profile types. Uh, so, uh, and he's sort of standing in this line, and the sultan comes out. He emerges from the mosque, and uh, you know, each all the dignitaries bow down to him. And Shibli's kind of so overwhelmed by this moment that he's coming uh, into contact with uh, Abdul Hamid II that he forgets to sort of bow, right? And so you can imagine this line of people sort of, you know, sh- showing respect. And there's Shibli kind of standing there mumbling, he tells us, uh, mumbling some, uh, you know, prayers for him in uh, one imagines to be Urdu or Arabic or uh, something. And he uh, and the, the sultan just sort of walks by and, and there's Shibli kind of standing there. Uh, and I think that that's uh, a, an anecdote that um, is both humorous, but also uh, humanizing. Um and uh, and that that's something that stands out. But I, I mean, there's a, there's a, there are others that I think I find um, really fascinating. Um, you know, there's an anecdote in which he uh, so he had brought copies of an Arabic book on uh, in written on a topic in Hanafi jurisprudence uh, that he had written um, in the 1870s. Uh, he brought copies of that probably to distribute to people uh, as a way to uh, network a little bit and to assert his, you know, identity as a scholar uh, and his sort of command of Arabic. And um, he befriends early in his journeys in Istanbul, he befriends uh, a member of the family of Khalid Naqshbandi, who's a very influential uh, Sufi uh, in Syria um, and uh, who Shibli 
tells us in the travelogue, rightly, uh, had been initiated into the order in India by Mazhar um, Jane Jana in the 18th century. Now, Shibli is, uh, doesn't identify as a Sufi, um, but he sort of, there's a, a kind of familiarity there already uh, that, okay, there's a connection here. Uh, you know, there's the, we talked already a little bit about sort of uh, belonging and Islam and uh, Muslim community. We've talked a little bit about Arabic, and there's also a kind of trans-regional connection with India there. Uh, and he has this book that he's brought out. Uh, he's got it out on a table, and uh, a visitor comes to visit his now roommate, this, uh, I think it's a son of Khalid Naqshbandi, um, and uh, the person recognizes the book and says, oh, my teacher back in Damascus sort of read this and praised this work. And, um, you know, the anecdote itself um, on paper is not as, you know, entertaining as the anecdote about Shibli, <laughs> uh, not bowing to Abdul Hamid II, um, but it, it is an anecdote that so importantly, I think, um, illustrates uh, that that knowledge, texts, people, and ideas um, continued to, to sort of move across the porous borders of empire, and that um, it, and it sort of pushes back against the stereotype, uh, especially about the modern period, uh, which has that, you know, Arabic learning is something that really flowed from the West to the East. That is to say that, uh, you know, uh, jurisprudential texts uh, written by scholars in what's now the Middle East, those are the things that are being read and responded to um, in uh, South Asia uh, by uh, Islamic thinkers, by Arabic scholars, etc. Uh, and it shows us this anecdote very interestingly that in fact uh, the current moved uh, in both directions or at least that there were uh, currents moving in both directions. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, um, that's an anecdote that I think is important because it leads to an insight, which is one of my favorite things about the travelogue, which is that Shibley's experiences in this book are mediated by uh, his relationships, not with Turks. We've already talked about the language issue being a barrier to forming close relationships uh, with um, Turkish speakers. Um, but, um, but rather, uh, through a, a series of, of close friendships that he forms with, um, uh, Syrian immigrants, uh, people who are living in Istanbul for, uh, because they're, uh, in school there or because they're visiting statesmen, uh, or because they have a connection to politics. And the kind of more you dig into the travelogue and you, you learn about the historical context in which Shibli's writing, the more you realize that this um, that this book is not just a a really fascinating record of what it was like to be an Indian scholar and intellectual traveling to Istanbul in uh, the 1890s. It's not just a record of sort of. Uh, by the way, Indian networks at Istanbul. Of course, he meets this community of Indians there and spends time, a little bit of time with them, befriends them. Um, but uh, it's it's also a record of this kind of experience of the city through the eyes of this kind of Syrian community 
of, let's call them immigrants, or at least people who are visiting for an extended period. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, the evidence for this is, is all over the place. But, uh, you know, there's some interesting philological evidence for this, the names of things that Shibley shares with us. He's constantly giving us not only Arabic words that aren't uh, sort of uh, don't make it, don't find their way into uh, tur- tur- excuse me, Turkish lexicons of the, of the, of the period, uh, but are actually um, sort of uh, words that are unique to the Syrian dialect of Arabic. So he calls a, he encounters pairs, uh, and he calls them an injas, and he, he spells this with a scene instead of a swad, uh, and uh, tells us this is a uh, the, the word for this wonderful fruit that I've been enjoying uh, here in Istanbul. And that word, according to uh, the lexicographers and, and Arabic experts, uh, is a word uh, that is a, a, a unique sort of Syrian dialect word for a pair. And that tells you that the, the people that are talking to him about the things that he's experiencing uh, are largely um, Arabic speakers, and they're largely uh, Arabic speakers uh, coming from this circle uh, of, um, of, of, uh, of, of, of friends uh, who are living in, in Damascus. So uh, those are the two anecdotes that come to mind, the humorous anecdote uh, and um, the anecdote about Shibli's book, which I think, again, both opens up this, um, op- open, it sort of opens a window onto the transmission of knowledge across region in multiple directions, um, but it also uh, sort of opens a door uh, to ex- uh, exploring this um, sort of multi-layered uh, aspect of the travelogue. Um, yeah, so I think I answered your question. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for that treat. I hope it, it incentivizes some of our listeners to pick up a copy um, because it is truly a wondrous, wondrous travelogue, and the, and the translation that you've done is an enormous service. Um, really not just to South Asianists or, or Middle Easternists, but I think uh, literary culture um, at large. Um, and you. I guess as a final question, uh, I'm sure I, many of us, including myself, would love to know what you're currently working on and what we can look forward to reading from you in the near or distant future. Oh, goodness. Uh, well, let's see. Um, well, my, my main book project is, of course, uh, the intellectual uh, biography of Shibley. Uh, that was what my dissertation work began. Uh, and as I mentioned, this book sort of grew out of that uh, dissertation um, and uh, in many ways is uh, a project that I envision as being sort of complementary to uh, the monograph, which looks at you know Shibley's life and the relationship between uh, experiences like his uh, experiences traveling in the Ottoman Empire and Egypt in the in 1892, uh, and um, his life uh, as a theologian, as a literary critic, as a historian, um, as an educator, a professor, institution builder. So that's sort of my main project. Um, but I'm working on a few other things. You know, I edit the Journal of Urdu Studies um, for. Uh, uh, Brill, I'm one of the, uh, I should say, I'm a co-editor of the, very clear, I'm a co-editor of the Journal of Urdu Studies. Uh, and that takes up a, a great deal of time, but has also been very rewarding um, because, of course, you know, this travelogue uh, was written mainly in Urdu. Uh, and so it is, I hope, 
uh, a work that uh, scholars of Urdu studies are going to find uh, um, meaningful and helpful uh, and engaging. Um, uh, I should, I, so, I suppose, mention as an aside that the travelogue uh, was written in four languages. There's Arabic, there's Persian, and I had to learn a little bit of Ottoman Turkish to translate it. Um, and uh, so uh, it's a multilingual text, just as Shibli was a multilingual thinker, writer, um, and scholar. Uh, and so um, part of my challenge as uh, a, a student of his works and his ideas uh, is to understand uh, this world in which he writes and, uh, and, and the, the texts and ideas that he's thinking through as a historian, as a critic, as a theologian, etc. And so I have a, a couple of um, projects uh, that I'm working on related to Arabic rationalism and uh, Persian wisdom literature. Um, and uh, hopefully those will be coming out soon enough. I don't want to say too much about them, but uh, um, hopefully uh, those will make an appearance alongside uh, the uh, biography. Thank you so much for that. That sounds really exciting. And I just want to say that I'd like to have dibs on inviting you once again to the podcast when, uh, you know, that comes out. I'd love uh, to come I, back. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Bruce, um, for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners as well. Um, I hope you enjoyed the discussion. And please do get your hands on this translation. Once again, it is called Turkey, Egypt, and Syria, a travelogue by Shibli Nomani, translated by Gregory Maxwell Bruce and published by the Syracuse University Press. Thank you once again and see you next time. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.